Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Pleased to be joined in studio, as always, by producer extraordinaire Krista Baruti. It's our last show of the day. It's so sad. Well, I tell you what, man. After today, we're going to be a lot smarter because we've had some uh, mental horsepower in studio today. Are we? Today. Is that, are, we're gonna, are, we're, we're, are we? We're, uh, that well, me and you? We're going to get noted up here in just a minute. <laughs> Who do we have in the studio today? I'm actually really excited about today's show because uh, some very cool people are joining us in studio today. Uh, we've got Dr. John Schaffner. He's a uh, neurologist and geneticist that's part of medical, neurogene- medical neurogenetics, easy for me to say. I'm um, going to talk to us about uh, mitochondrial diseases and it uh, encompasses is what the heck is that? It encompasses a lot of things that a lot of people have heard about but uh, may not have realized there may be some uh, commonalities between those that we're trying to get to the bottom of. So thanks for taking time out of the office to come and share some information. Absolutely, my pleasure. And Laura Stanley, the uh, Executive Director for the Foundation for Mitochondrial Medicine, and I was fortunate enough to have met Laura at the inaugural Health Connect South event back in September, um, that platform being created to start pulling together the health assets in the community of a variety of types from research as we're talking about here today um, to things you wouldn't necessarily think about logistics UPS was there they have six right. million square feet of you know, healthcare related storage and transportation that uh, I had no idea it was about so trying to help elevate awareness of the variety of resources uh, one of those that's also uh, could be benefiting from a greater uh, level of awareness is one of the reasons why we're here dr. Helen Gelly the founder and one of the physicians of Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia. She's going to be talking to us about an article that uh, they published recently talking about the challenges that we face in the the specialty of hyperbaric medicine. So, Helen, thanks for taking some time to join us here, too. My pleasure. So we'll start with you, Laura, um, since this is kind of what pulled today's show together, meeting you and uh, saying, hey, we need to talk about what you're doing. Um, From what I understand, uh, both from you telling your story a little bit back in September and then, of course, uh, some more today, uh, you have a personal investment in this particular topic of mitochondrial diseases. So can you share a little bit about what brought you into the space and Absolutely. got you to where you are now. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, this is a great uh, example of the collaboration that Health Connect South was trying to achieve. So thank you for having us. Um, the Foundation for Mitochondrial Medicine um, is an organization uh, headquartered in Atlanta, but really uh, focused on three things. So raising awareness for mitochondrial disease, making connections to related diseases like autism and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and things that are much more familiar to us, and then funding research, because right now there are no specific treatments for mitochondrial mitochondrial diseases. So as you mentioned, um, I got involved um, about five years ago, five, six years ago now, because my son was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease. And uh, the journey to diagnosis is an arduous one. Um, It's not very straightforward. And um, what I've learned over the last uh, several years is that no two stories are alike. And um, so when I was leaving my corporate HR role uh, at Earthlink, um, my background is recruiting and training and development, human resources, really nothing to do with nonprofits or the medical profession. And radio further back, and as we know. And radio, but we won't talk too much about that now, will we? Um, I don't know. It's a good story. Talk a lot about that. <laughs> oh, God. 
goodness. <laughs> hey, I'm turning red. Yeah. Thank goodness this is not TV, so, right? That's right. Um, so anyway, um, we had just gotten our diagnosis, and Dr. Schaffner is um, my son's physician. And um, so I heard about this nonprofit and said, oh, I'll raise my hand and get involved. And so conversations ensued, shall we say, and one thing led to another, and I became the first part-time staff member for the foundation. And um, so, you know, um, it was really probably, uh, gosh, almost a three to four almost five-year process to even get to the diagnosis. And I was going to ask you about that. Can you share some information? Because as we talked before we went on the show, uh, mitochondria are part of every cell in our body. And, right. and so where they're going awry will kind of dictate what we're dealing with. That's so, right. and, and that makes it that much more challenging because it's not just a this, 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 and this are our symptoms, so that must be mitochondrial disease. Right. Um, can you share uh, some information about kind of what you were experiencing that made you think, geez, we gotta, we've got to go and figure this out? How we got to that yeah. point. Um, sure. So, um, you know, my childhood sort of met all the developmental milestones, for the most part, like all children um, are expected. And when we got to sort of kindergarten age was where, in the academic setting, things were more challenging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we go to the pediatrician and kind of describe some of the school difficulties, um, you know, everything, some, some of the basics, you know, pencil grip and um, attention span and um, sort of, you know, following directions and being able to you know, sort of stay on task and, and sort of basic things that, you know, at this point, though, for my oldest uh, um, firstborn child and, you know, I sit there and go, really, does a five-year-old boy need to have great pencil grip? I'm not sure, right. you know, what that means. And so anyway, that sort of began the um, the odyssey. And, you know, we went down the routes of um, uh, sensory processing, sensory processing right. and psychologist and psychiatrist and um, occupational therapist right. and physical therapist. Been and there, we've done those. Mm -hmm. and, and then lots of uh, early, and lots of early testing, mm -hmm. um, and particularly a focus early on was the brain imaging that was right. done, which well, was really kind of turned a corner on the way that everybody started, started to look to at. Look so at like a child. PET scan kind of thing? Or? It was an MRI, but, you know, frankly, that was, you know, that finally got to the point where it was our psychologist that said, Laura, there's something else going on here. I think you need to see a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So is at that point, as John mentioned, that um, we did see a neurologist um, who said, okay, let's, let's look at the whole picture here, you know, not just sort of these isolated right. elements. And so, you know, when you look at these different isolated elements, that's when you end up with a variety of different diagnoses, <laughs> too. Try this, try this, you and know, a bunch of medicine. Asperger's that kind of stuff. Yes. and sensory integration processing right. disorder and, oh, maybe you have heavy metal toxicity poisoning, too. And, right. you know, you need to try some holistic sort of chelation. And <laughs> anyway, we're driving all over, right. you know, tarnation yeah. trying to get some answers. But we did finally get to the neurologist who then had done some brain imaging and some endocrinologists. So there were a variety of systemic things going on and sort of multi-system approach. And um, that's when we noticed... Um, some changes in the the volume of the brain scan, um, which they sometimes see that with mitochondrial disorders. And so fortunately for us, um, you know, we were able to get to Dr. Schaffner, who uh, was local in Atlanta. People come from all over the world. I remember when we um, had mentioned to uh, one of the nurses at the Scottish Rite that we were here from Atlanta. She originally said, well, how was your trip last night? Did you, and did you stay in the hotel? And I, she you assumed know, the last you were one of the folks that traveled We're in. here from Alaska. And right. I said, no, we actually live down the street you know wow. so um anyway you know it's it's a long story but um you know the gist of it is that um most people you know have a, a complex um 
situation. And so, you know, there's just, you can't just zip into the pediatrician's office and, you know, get a quick, um, you know, blood test and have your answers. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of my connection and then got involved in the nonprofit. And um, so, you know, one of the great opportunities by meeting you is to really tell the story a little bit more so people can understand that this is really not something obscure and a rare orphan situation. It really affects one in 2,500 people and it's adults and it's teenagers and it's children and um, so all shapes and sizes. And and that was one of the things that I was kind of surprised to see as I read through the white paper that you provided that the statistics are pretty impressive. And then when we start, you know, looking at the fact that it includes some of the things you mentioned, muscular dystrophy, ALS, uh, Alzheimer's, those types of things, obviously names of, of disorders that people are more familiar with, you know, being able to understand that there is a, a process that appears to be kind of coming into view that uh, may be related to the function of this particular, or at least as a component of those, uh, the mitochondria, and, and um, you know, maybe give us some guidance as to and, where to go from there. And when you uh, think about it in terms of the number of genes in your, in your genome that are devoted to cellular energetics, then the statistics become really a lot more understandable because this isn't one gene or two gene. This is hundreds and hundreds of genes that are required to operate, regulate, make the system work. And so just like any very, very, very complex machine, there's lots and lots of ways for it to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And then that in aggregate is all the diseases as well as the incidents that – that um, we talk about. Mm-hmm. So I guess, and you know, we may have already confused your listeners. I mean, maybe we need to sort of take a step back. Well, and I was going to say, let's start. Now, we know that you know. I wanted to kind of get an idea for the listener out there that that some folks out there will be dealing with issues like this. Mm-hmm. They've got seemingly nobody can tell me what my problem is. I've still got the problem. My kids still got this issue. Right. It's got to be something. Right. Um, yeah. What is it? And it's trying to illustrate that the that the things that you're dealing with may end up being somewhat vague. They may kind of mirror a number of different things. And and therefore, just like you talked about, one provider may say it's this, one provider may say it's that. But I think the overall picture in terms of trying to at least get a specialist that we include is perhaps taking advantage of this and, and, and using it as one of those rule out type situations because if it turns out to be this, then we can maybe potentially participate in the study or, or have some measure of, idea what what to do so you know knowing we, we kind of had a, a, a we, we started with your story and then we'll kind of go to the prequel of that is what is mitochondrial disease right. we talked about the fact that there's a genetic component to we believe what kind of underpins that that the genetic expression tends to get fouled up somehow or um, how it's executed at the cellular level is kind of messed up and therefore we're our mitochondria aren't f- performing correctly um, but illuminate that for the listener as to what exactly mitochondrial disease is and how does it tie into things like what we're talking about, Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, those are the types of things. Right, and let's kind of take a bunch of steps back and start with the simplest, what are the mitochondria? Mm -hmm. And uh, in the very simplest iteration, the food that you eat every day, the reason you eat it is you want the electrons. And so that's what you're really hungry for because it's the electrons that get pulled out of your fats, your proteins, your carbohydrates, and are used and are converted to a useful type of fuel or energy. Mm -hmm. 
And it's that energy transfer that's moving from your foods to compounds that are essential to many biochemical reactions in the way cells work, like ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And so it's this conversion between the energy stored in food and the right kind of fuel that your cells need to survive and to work and to do all the things they do. Then as we were talking about before the show started, it's much more complex than that because it's not just a bucket of fuel that your body needs and, gee, if I can only get enough. This is very, very carefully regulated on a cell-to-cell basis and a cell-type two-cell type basis. So very different for skin, then heart, then endocrine, then brain, brain, and on and on and on. So that what comes out the other end clinically when you're looking at patients is this vast array of seemingly, seemingly unconnected disorders that are in fact connected by final common pathways pathways that are important to the pathogenesis of all these types of disorders that we'll talk about. And I like, let me add, is it, um, while it's, you know, we commonly kind of shorthand the term mitochondrial disease, but it's important to combine that with mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial dysfunction because both terms are relevant to how these disorders work, and how we might think about diagnosis and ultimately treatment of these disorders. So then going on to sort of the second level, which is Alzheimer's, ALS, muscle diseases, eye diseases, Parkinson's, epilepsy, all the above, is that these are literally um, articulations of the very, very specific ways that the mitochondria are misbehaving. In that particular area of the body. That's right, in that particular area or organ of the body. And so just a a few quick factoids is that, you know, for example, you can walk into, and I I like this one because it really kind of drives home the everyday nature of mitochondrial disorders. Because you can walk into any diabetes clinic and about almost 1% of all the patients in that clinic will have just one mutation in one gene of the hundreds and hundreds of genes that are possibly can cause mitochondrial disorders. So while that may not sound like a lot when you say about 1%, but it's one molecule out of place in one gene. It's the same one. And the point is, is it points to the very, very important and common underpinning of these diseases to the mitochondria. Because then as you talk about diabetes more specifically genetically, and you divide it out into its many, many different types and subtypes, then you start to see more and more genes emerge that are important for that disease process. And early on in our research, we'd done an awful lot of work with diabetes and hereditary (laughs) forms of diabetes. The same type of story can be told for the relationships with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's disease, 
different types of epilepsies. In fact, the first uh, mitochondrial gene mutation that um, I had discovered early in my career um, was the first epilepsy gene mutation. It was in one of the uh, mitochondrial genes and causes a particular type of myoclonic epilepsy. So this particular organelle, organelles are small structures that live inside your cells that have very specific functions, touches not only the function of each organ, but also has specific diseases associated with that. So hopefully that's mm -hmm. a, a good foundation or a base for the listeners that helps at least open up the rationale and the linkages to why we talk about mitochondria and Parkinson's disease and muscle diseases and eye diseases all in the same sentence. So now as it relates then to research and trying to kind of go back and get to the origin of these, obviously you've identified the fact that there tends to be a pretty heavy genetic component, the way it's uh, expressed um, or the way um, – you know, the code is laid out. Maybe there's a, as you talked about, a molecule on the chain is, is out of place or, or not as it should be. Um, that then gives you the ability to develop treatments, you know, whether they're a medicine of some kind or some other treatment that might try to address that underlying problem, right? That's where I can start to say, well, you have ALS, and so we're, we're going to be able to treat it with this because so many of these right now really don't seem to have something as a treatment that turns them around right. or controls them. That's right. And so the goal becomes, um, like many things in medicine, is if you understand what's causing, um, and usually it's many things. It's usually not just one thing. It's a complex genetic biochemical interaction that's causing a specific disease. And really what you're doing on the research side is you're really picking away at that so that you have the right directionality to begin coming up with testing different types of therapeutic approaches that would impact that specific disease. And I think that um, just a quick comment about the mitochondria is the mitochondria has a very dynamic internal and external interaction. And what I mean by that is that not only is it regulating things internally and organs and all the different specific ways we kind of alluded to and talked about, but things that you encounter medically can have adverse effects as well. And so you're talking about adverse as well as, on the research side, things that would have positive effects, therapeutic effects. And a quick example is you can have certain gene mutations in certain mitochondrial genes, one is called PAL-G, polymerase gamma, that if you have these mutations, you have up to a 20-fold increase risk of uh, liver toxicity and potentially liver failure from taking valproate, valproic acid. So the great thing is beginning to understand some of those relationships is using that in a protective way for mm -hmm. patients. If you have this and you know about it, you would stay away from those types of medicines and drugs to avoid the very, very devastating complexities. So it's working along you know, all of those axes, the therapeutic, the preventative, 
and the d- understanding and diagnosis of disease. Mm-hmm. So, so can then you, you can treat, you know, you're treating symptoms, but you're also better understanding this underlying foundation that becomes the root cause. And hopefully able to find some kind of medical treatment that addresses that. that. Exactly. Not That's just symptom management. our preference. Yeah. <laughs> and the great thing in that, you know, when you, when you kind of lay it out that way, you know, for clinicians, in the clinician's mind, is that you're, is that you're thinking of patients along the entire spectrum. The family history, other people that may be affected, like in the cardiomyopathies or certain types of disorders. You're thinking about diagnosis. You're thinking about prognosis. You're thinking about drugs that could harm your patient, side Mm. effects. And in many categories, um, it changes the way that you think about management of that individual. So in other words, my point is, is it from a clinical perspective, you're really bringing it to the level of affecting um, essentially all aspects of patient care and the way that you want to approach patients and deliver that care. So can you talk about some of your research that you're doing right now, whether it's on medications that might potentially, at a minimum, help some of the symptoms that the people are are dealing with, but to potentially a, some sort of a curative type medication if there is such a research project going on. Or as you talked about looking at some of the trying to cause or find out what causes, you know, what is the genetic mutation that causes this or that so that we can then, I, I, I assume, then have a test of some kind that helps me identify that. Just like you mentioned a moment ago, if you have this genetic marker, we know now that you can get genetic markers that'll tell you your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, for example. Things like that, it sounds like that's where we're going with some of the things is, one, being able to tell a person you're at risk for this or you, you have a genetic mutation that will mean that if you ever encounter this type of medication or this type of substance, it could have dire consequences for you. It lets them be proactive with their, with their situation. So can you talk about the things you're working on? And then uh, we can hopefully share information with either our providers, because obviously we have both physicians as well as people in the community um, uh, that are lay people that might possibly be able to benefit from knowing about the study that you're doing by participating or getting somebody involved. Uh, absolutely. And let me kind of break it into those categories. I mean, first of all, diagnostically, um, our laboratory, Medical Neurogenetics is the name. We perform diagnostic testing for hospitals, universities, physicians' offices, domestically and internationally, all over the world. And these are routine, you know, reimbursable by insurance tests. From a research perspective, which moves beyond that, to give you some examples. I mean, for example, we have um, ongoing right now and, of course, have worked on over the years a number of drug studies where that you're taking specific new drugs and you're looking at cells, patient cells, that have very, very specific gene abnormalities and looking and using complex protein chemistry, different ways the cells work to see, very simply, if that drug has a therapeutic effect or not. And we've been working on some drugs that are now moving through the early phases of FDA um, approval and process so that they can be utilized clinically. And in the the case of medications as it relates to 
diseases that have a heavy genetic component. There's a there's a molecule out of line, or there's an extra one. Whatever the whatever the problem with the genetic code may be, do those medications tend to exert their influence by somehow muting the when this is when this gene gets you know read read and expressed by the body that it mutes the response to this particular thing because what this particular section spits out is an error every time so so if we give this medication then that response doesn't happen when the code is is read by the body is that kind of what what happens or how does the body respond um sort of kind of maybe Yes, no. <laughs> does, well, it that aff- does it? Uh, mm-hmm. Very good. That, 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 uh, that covers all the bases. Okay. There we go. But what that what that means is that um, whenever you have one of these diseases, as we talked about, there's things going on inside the cells that are very very specific to those diseases. But fortunately, there's also another basket. There's things that go wrong in the cell that are common to all of the diseases different ways that the mitochondria function that are common to all the diseases. That's the level that you want to to affect or have these drugs affect so that they have the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in terms of the array of disorders that they could be beneficial for. And that's the level that the drugs are really targeted at. Okay. Not at the single molecule in the gene level, but at the effects of those changes that are common to many, many types of diseases. Can you address the um, timeline or the expression of these mitochondrial disorders? Uh, Are they always uh, manifested in childhood, or can they manifest throughout one's life depending on age and other environmental triggers? How does there's no real cutoff, is there, in terms yeah. of when you can no uh, you can manifest these uh, disorders? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it because you're exactly right. <clears throat> it, depending on exactly what's going on wrong and how severe that problem is, it may manifest mas- manifest itself on day one of life, or when you're 55, or even 60, or your second, third, fourth decade, any time during adulthood. And so adding to the complexity and the broad range of these disorders and their presentation. Is it fair to say, too, that there's, there's something that often becomes a trigger that um, allows the you to cross that threshold of expression in some capacity? That's, yeah, that's where I was in my mind as you were talking about it with Helen's question just now, is that obviously as we age, we're changing hormonally, which changes you know, a lot of things. Uh, we're also experiencing um, environmental stressors of different kinds that cause their own set of problems at the cellular level. So and those, those insults start to happen. That's right. And that exposes the error. Well, that's right, because uh, you do have an additive effect of everything that you've been exposed to and that you've experienced, because we're all part of the aging, the complexity that is aging is um, the accumulation of somatic mutations, which is a term that means things you weren't born with, that you acquired during life. And you can watch in, for example, people's muscle, as you look at it over time, the accumulation of mitochondrial defects and the appearance of easily recognizable uh, defects in those cells. So part of the aging process, you know, affects the mitochondria. One part of the mitochondria, the mitochondrial DNA, has very limited repair mechanisms, 
our nuclear DNA, our chromosomes, does have repair mechanisms um, that doesn't compensate completely, as we all know, but it offsets things a little bit. The mitochondrial DNA is very poor at that kind of correction, and you really accumulate or can accumulate a lot in your cells over time. And you can imagine, as has been shown uh, in a variety of disorders, that in disorders that depend on defects in very small numbers of cells, you really don't have to hit that many cells sometimes to get a very large disease-related effect. Let me ask a layperson's question. You know, now there are multiple ways of getting genetic testing that are available online, um, cheek swabs, spit mm -hmm. in a cup kind of thing. Um, do you find that helpful or a hindrance? And because you get the genetic code back, but it doesn't really mean anything unless somebody um, has an opportunity to look at it. So are there um, providers that actually would take genetic testing that was provided by one of these companies um, and be able to give you any information, or is that just kind of for fun? You're part German, part South African, yeah. part uh, and how much And how Neanderthal are yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I think that uh, it's a really important question to bring up, too, because it does uh, – it is an area of a lot of confusion, I think, for mm. consumers and for uh, patients, is that that division – and I'm putting on my – um, ACMG, you know, medical geneticist hat now, is that, um, is that if you really want diagnostic medical testing, you need to go to the appropriate healthcare uh, professional, have the right informed consent, have the right uh, uh, environment for genetic counseling and education and application of the testing. And that needs to go to a lab that has the right CLIA and other certifications that can credibly perform that testing. Direct-to-consumer testing, as you know, is fraught with difficulties yeah. and, and incorrect information that has the potential to be made available to the, uh, to the uh, person getting it. And I know that, just speaking for myself, I would not use that information in my practice Right. For diagnosis. We've been talking with neurologist and geneticist Dr. John Schaffner of Medical Neurogenetics and Laura Stanley from the Foundation of Mitochondrial Medicine Learning about a very interesting uh, disorder uh, dealing with the mitochondria in our body. And those are organs within our cells that uh, each of our cells, regardless of the tissue that we're talking about, each of the cells have these little engines basically that kind of convert our food. I prefer my electrons in beer and pizza, <laughs> um, but uh, convert the beer and pizza into the energy that drives every cell to do its thing. And uh, we've understood now that um, how those little engines called the mitochondria and the cells do their thing is guided by gen genetic code that they process. And those can have some you know, dysfunction to them in terms of the way they're expressed or the way it's uh, uh, read and, and uh, executed upon. So it can cause an array of different problems, obviously, that uh, can be kind of vague and, and hard to identify. So, you know, before we jump over and we, we, we talk to Helen, I want to tie it back together for our listener that may be either a physician or a person in the community that searching for answers. Mm. Um, clearly, it's, it's it seems as though if I'm one of those people that I've got a child that has been dealing with uh, or a loved one, whether mm -hmm. even if it's not a child, um, that's been having a variety of things going on uh, that uh, have been very difficult to identify. It sounds like 
some genetic testing from a respected neurologist is a good place to start. If you've not done that already, that's a piece of evidence that could potentially lead you closer to something that's been identified as this by this guy and identified by this by this person and, and, and so forth. You might actually get a real answer. It may come down to some genetics for one thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, as far as being able to be somebody who could benefit from a research study, being a participant if they were to qualify, how does that, how would I, how would I get involved in research if, if my loved one happens to fall into one of these mm-hmm. patients that would qualify? And I think that, um, you know, that's really an important area because you have to have a proper diagnosis first. Yeah. And the vehicle for that, of course, is, as you said, is seeing your healthcare professional. could be anything from your pediatrician, internal medicine, or other specialists, neurologists, cardiologist, so on and so forth, endocrinologist. And they will either have the expertise to assist the patient or can reach out, for example, at our organization, I take, um, uh, uh, they simply go to our website, type in their questions, I either call them or answer email to help guide that individual into things that they may or may not need or referrals that they may need or not need to move forward. So in other words, it's getting the right directionality through the healthcare professional and they'll either know or can reach out to somebody who does. Then from an involvement in research perspective, we often uh, let uh, physicians know, particularly when we identify specific categories of disorders. But um, the, the National Institute of Health has um, a, a website, clinicaltrials.gov, that I always recommend patients uh, as advocacy becomes more, I mean, becomes essential in medicine, really, is to check once they have a proper and correct diagnosis for trials that they may be eligible for and it may help them with their condition. So once I'm diagnosed, then if I were to access a resource like the National Institutes of Health list, then you're saying that it's presented in a way that a layperson who knows that they've been diagnosed with thus and such could say, oh, this research study looks like I might be able to benefit. That's right. And in the simplest iteration, uh, you go to clinicaltrials.gov and let's say you type in diabetes. You'll get a list of all the ongoing approved studies in diabetes. You can read through them. There's contact information of individuals to reach out to who are heading the study that you can talk to and understand if that patient or that person or yourself could be potentially benefit or be a participant in that study. I'm essentially a layperson as it relates to genetics. So as it, so as it relates to asking for a genetic test, if I'm getting a white blood cell count, it's a white blood cell count in this doctor and this doctor and this doctor. But as it relates to genetic testing, do I need to – I mean, that seems like that could encompass a huge array of different things. I mean, when I get a genetic test, of, do, am I asking for something in particular or – the tests are very specific yeah, to the diseases to be, that you're, right. and that's why that, that you know, physician. to bring it full circle, you're yeah. going to have to go back to that healthcare professional who will know or will get guidance from someone like myself. Because I wouldn't know what to, what to ask for. Then you, the individual okay. consumer, mm-hmm. doesn't do that. And but I'm, uh, I was going to say, thought. well, yeah, I mean, there's the clinicaltrials.gov uh, with the NIH and also uh, the Foundation for Mitochondrial Medicine. We are a great resource as well through our website. Um, hopeflies.org is a nice, simple way so people don't have to remember how to spell mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as a fun fact, um, the reason... Uh, we use Hope Flies, and the Firefly is our um, our 
emblem or, or logo is because actually the mitochondria in the firefly's tail is what's causing the oh, globe yeah, to work right. there. Yeah. So um, Dr. Schaffner can kind of elaborate on some that's research cool. that's just, actually underway there. Yeah, and just to tell it. you really quick, um, the uh, enzyme that lights up in the back of fireflies is called luciferase. What we've done is that we've taken that enzyme from the firefly, the genes, and put them in human cells. Yeah. She's nodding because we, it was just, what, two, three weeks ago? Something like that. We were talking about a study that's being done as it relates to hyperbaric medicine that is using that, and it's quite, uh, quite intriguing how it uh, does what it does. So what is your study? And then so what we do is that once we put them in the cells, that luciferase, we can send it to the mitochondria, and then it lives inside the mitochondria. Well, because luciferase lights up in direct proportion to the amount of ATP that's being made, we can use it to quantitate how much ATP is being made within a single mitochondria inside a normally functioning cell. And so that's the story behind the logo. That's the story. You can make me glow. No, yeah, my exactly. tail light is not glowing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> But that's but then you'll be able to test drugs too. So right. um, you know, right. then you can sort of right. insert yeah, this new drug compound. The rate that the energy is being produced how, as we would want. That's right, and see how much glow is there. I and see. Uh, so. are there any prospective uh, studies being done or trials taking um, folks identifying their DNA um, and then following them for development of certain diseases? So prospectively mm-hmm. saying. We've got the bank sort of like the study, the Farmingham study for, for heart, uh, mm-hmm. Framingham. So. Yeah, the short version is absolutely is that uh, a very, very hot area is not only, you know, the, uh, the genes that um, give you a very specific disease every time you get a mutation in that disease, but genes that over time are interacting with environment, aging, a variety of factors that are modifying or providing susceptibility to certain diseases. And so that kind of longitudinal prospective approach is very important right now. It's a very hot area. And before we uh, jump over and and talk about hyperbaric medicine a little bit, Laura, can you share? I know that there's some efforts to be collaborating with uh, other entities out there like the Michael J. Fox Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, efforts to research on uh, Parkinson's disease. Can you talk a little bit about that before we Sure, sure. Um, Well, one of the things that we want to do from a research standpoint is really partner with related disease organizations so that we contribute funding, those other organizations contribute funding, and then you know, the pie becomes bigger for everybody so that the rising tide ultimately is going to lift mm-hmm. multiple boats. So we um, have co-funded a study with the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation out of New York and then with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And those are still, you know, in the early stages. Um, but it's exciting that, you know, larger, more well-known organizations um, are partnering with us because they have a very specific interest in the mitochondria. And so back to John's point earlier about mitochondrial dysfunction. I mean, clearly mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the causes 
cause of these other diseases. And mm-hmm. so if they can you know, get at those answers, then it's going to illuminate areas for mitochondrial disease and, you know, uh, eventually other areas. Anything downstream from the ice bucket challenge? (laughs) You know, we actually did get some contributions from that as well. Um, So um, that's that's nice that people are sort of seeing the connectivity. Maybe we should do like a pie-in-the-face viral (laughs) video for raising awareness on hyperbaric medicine. Or or mitochondrial disease. That's right. Exactly. We could combine it into an effort. Any other final thoughts that you have for, for folks out there, whether it's advice for a provider that may be listening today or perhaps a a person whose loved one is, is dealing with what could be one of these uh, types of issues. And if it's appropriate to uh, maybe uh, both uh, Laura and I could give uh, our website. Do, please. Because that way it provides for health professionals and lay uh, individuals places to go to begin to start to look and mm-hmm. learn about these things. Absolutely, right. please. Uh, for medical neurogenetics, it's www.mnglab.lab. Dot com. And ours is just hopeflies.org. So and and for the folks that are listening, uh, when we come back with the podcast uh, after the show, what I do on the summary page where the show lives is I link to your websites and right. all your social media that's available. So people will be able to find you easily if they didn't, you know, if they weren't close to a pen, uh, we'll be able to get them linked up with you after the fact when they come back and uh, listen to the podcast and hopefully share with their loved ones. Thank okay. you. So my next guest who you've heard chiming in with some cool questions through uh, throughout the segment so far. Dr. Helen Gelly, uh, the founder of a practice of which I've been pleased to be a part for the past several years, five years already. Time flies. It is kind of crazy. Um, our practice, uh, Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia and the facilities, Hyperbarics, uh, um, we focus on the healing of wounds, and uh, as a component of that, our practice is one that's very much uh, evidence-driven in what we apply to a person's wound when it's not healing correctly, whether it's, uh, say, a diabetic ulcer or perhaps somebody that's got radiation injuries from radiation treatment they've received in the past, and now they're a cancer survivor. Um, Hyperbaric medicine is obviously a key component to what we do, and uh, as uh, as we discussed earlier before the show, general awareness of what we do uh, is certainly lacking among the medical community, and that trickles down um, to, or, or trickles up, I guess, I don't know which direction it would be, but it has an impact uh, on things like is it, a, is it a treatment that's paid for? Uh, because that's an obvious important concern for the patients who are trying to seek out this therapy that we know very well based on evidence, um, that it works very effectively for the things that we treat. So um, I had read an article that was published by you and Dr. Carolyn Fife out of Texas in today's Wound Clinic, uh, a publication that deals with the wound space, uh, topics uh, important to that area. And it it highlighted some of the challenges that we're facing as a medical specialty as it relates to the, the third-party payers out there upon whom our patients rely to be able to receive this care that we know, like I've said, that some very high-level high studies and a good bit of, uh, of uh, research has shown has a major effect on quality of life and and outcomes uh, for things such as amputation prevention, for example. So let's talk about your article and uh, some of your concerns as it relates to what we do. Well, one of the the aspects of um, healthcare today is that um, there are increasing issues uh, with um, the regulation and the provision of healthcare and how it is provided 
um, to our uh, patients. And of course, the main driver uh, of regulatory um, issues is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, or as most people refer to it as Medicare. And Medicare is uh, facing a number of financial challenges uh, in the upcoming years. And their response to these financial challenges is to try and regulate the provision of services um, in a, a much more micromanaged uh, format than previously. So hyperbaric medicine has not been immune to that um, area of uh, regulatory oversight. And that's one of the things that, as a profession, we're looking at uh, having to answer questions um, that we previously didn't have to answer, and um, how we approach um, the um, Medicare and the fiscal intermediaries uh, that actually distribute uh, the, the um, services and the, and the finances on a local level um, vary from location to location, so it's not necessarily a national issue. Many times it's a very local A issue. regional one based on who is the administrating body for a given area. That's correct. And then to make things um, even more complicated, um, the opportunity for seniors to have Medicare Advantage plans, which are not traditional uh, Medicare product, but have um, an HMO component to it, um, these um, Advantage plans, Medicare Advantage plans, um, sometimes uh, don't actually uh, follow the uh, national Medicare guidelines. They actually use the company that is sponsoring the Advantage plans guidelines. And many times these guidelines are not open for public comment because they are using uh, proprietary um, practice protocols that are purchased from companies whose business it is to make protocols, which is completely appropriate. However, because there's no time for public comment, the end result can be quite draconian without too much in the way of um, counter-argument. Well, and that's the thing that really concerns me. As I read through the article uh, from today's Wound Clinic was that it talked about the fact that this given zone has now decided that these evidence-based treatments uh, are no longer paid for. Um, the, 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 the frustration that I have as a person that's in the specialty is, is it would seem that some of the folks that are making these decisions that are obviously, as you've talked about, I mean, we, we know that, that the business of healthcare is changing. We know that we're having to try to address cost, uh, but it, it, it starts to take on a relatively arbitrary uh feel to it in terms of how we're choosing to pay for this or that. And, and some of the things that you've talked about in your article as it relates to given um, zones uh, for CMS, for example, and, and even some major third-party payers that were historically would pay for treatments are, are not just affecting some of the, I guess, less conspicuous things that, uh, that uh, an accredited hyperbaric medicine program would treat, like uh, central retinal aorta occlusion. I mean, it doesn't happen very often. It's not a big, huge group of people. Obviously, it, it affects them dramatically if they have this issue and they get treatment. But we're talking about groups that are very large statistically, like late effects of radiation patients groups, uh, diabetics, things like that. Well, I think the problem has been um, 
much like the mitochondrial disorders, uh, hyperbaric medicine has been somewhat of an orphan child. Yeah. And that um, it's very challenging to do double-blind, randomized, controlled trials, which are purported to be the gold standard, when there is not a lot of funding behind it. There's not uh, billions to be made selling oxygen, that, apparently. That's, well... I suppose that's correct. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, the other side of that is, is that a patient who's in the control group quickly figures out they're in the control group. Hey, those guys over there are getting better and I'm not. And I'm the one that's going to lose a leg. So, Right. Well, <laughs> there are, those are ethical issues in how you set up your trial. The fundamental fact is that um, most of the current work that is being done is being done overseas. Mm -hmm. Most of the large clinical trials are being done um, in Scandinavia, in Turkey, um, historically in Italy. And the United States has really not stepped up in terms of doing the randomized clinical uh, trials that are necessary. However, uh, the preponderance of evidence in the two areas that we use hyperbaric therapy for in the majority of our patients um, in healing problem wounds and in treating the delayed effects of radiation, the, um, especially in the diabetic foot ulcer, uh, the um, evidence uh, supports the use of hyperbaric therapy in limb salvage, but then again, not as a standalone only. Right. In, in conjunction with all the other things, uh, good peripheral vascular uh, screening and offloading, Etc. So the reality is that we have, as a specialty, uh, will have to shift the way we present evidence uh, to outcomes-based evidence. And so the, those patients that we have been treating, we will need to look at what the outcomes are. And when you get a large enough number of patients in a trial, outcomes become significant and o override the blinding, the necessity to blind a certain uh, portion of those patients. So I think that's where we as a specialty are going to have to go. And I think quality measures or quality outcomes is another way that mm -hmm. Medicare is looking to um, make sure that the patient has the best outcome uh, for the amount of therapy that they're um, given. And I think that's where uh, our uh, focus will need to be in the future is on presenting uh, quality outcomes. We've been talking with uh, wound care and hyperbaric medicine specialist, Dr. Helen Gelly, uh, founder of Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, been in the field for 20 years, uh, yes. travels the <clears throat> world actually, um, educating physicians on the specialty of hyperbaric medicine, how it does its thing uh, physiologically and, and, and when it's indicated. Um, one of the things that your article talked about uh, in today's wound clinic was the fact that, as you kind of alluded to there, that we have to, as people that within the specialty, we have to begin to somewhat collaborate together and work together to engage the folks uh, that are, uh, say, the CMSs of the world um, and uh, the third-party payers of the world to help them make, a, I think, a more educated decision as it relates to these patient groups. How do we do that? Well, I think the easiest way is to do it through um, some type of wound registry or a registry system where reporting is done through the electronic medical record. And there is um, U.S. Uh, wound registry, which is um, the not-for-profit that Dr. Fife um, has established, where 
everyone who has an electronic medical record can uh, transmit that information, and it transmits everything about the patient record, not just necessarily the hyperbaric uh, component to it, so that we can look at um, other um, comorbidities, comorbidities and, 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 yeah. and, and, and issues. And then we need to take that registry information and um, analyze it so that we can get large groups of patients so that we can see positive or negative trends depending on um, what the data shows. And so that would be possible if I'm a podiatrist or a wound physician or a vascular surgeon or as a, long as you oncologist? Have a, as long as you have an electronic medical record that uh, is certified to be able to transmit that data, yes. How does one get engaged with that so that they can share that information and build that pool of data? Uh, they can go to the U.S. Wound Registry and um, Dr. Fife's uh, website. And they'll help you actually be able to do it. And they'll help you actually do that, yes. So how, do we, how, how, how is that being shared amongst our peers in the community? Obviously, the wound specialists are probably familiar. Obviously, Carolyn Fife is highly known uh, in our specialty, given all the different research that she's done. Um, but uh, how do we communicate that? How is it being well, shared Well, the Undersea right and Hyperbaric Medical Society is um, supporting um, this interface with the U.S. Uh, wound Registry. And so um, either through the UHMS website or on US, for the U.S. Uh, wound Registry website. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share some of the things? Because I know that the U UHMS is is undertaking efforts to interface with the CMSs of the, you know, of the world and third-party payers. Um, can you give updates on things that they are are doing to try to kind of, uh, you know, influence and share information as it relates to the these, how this particular modality um, is exerting its influence on a patient outcome? Because I know that they do some, they meet and share information with CMS, for example, as, as one of those entities that they interface with, and they they come up with some of the information that you're talking about. Well, the, U, the UHMS is definitely a resource for, as a scientific, as a scientific organization, is a resource for um, governmental agencies. And um, so we... As part of the UHMS work uh, closely with uh, allied um, industry groups in presenting information to the policy and decision makers at um, Medicare in order to at least provide the information that we think is pertinent um, in an effort to uh, educate so that they can make the correct um, policy decisions. Well, as, as I, I've always, I always remark at the end of our hour, I'm always blown away by how quickly it goes. Do you have any parting thoughts as it relates to you know what we were talking about here? We, the, the topic of the article uh, is hyperbaric oxygen therapy and wound care, a service under true pressure. Um, and based on what we were talking about as it relates to trimming of, of the extent to which the treatment is uh, reimbursed by Medicare and the other commercial third-party payers, it's, you know, it's something that, one, patients in the community really need to know this is out here. They need to be able to interface with their physicians and ask them about it, get more people aware so that it can be made available to the people that we know that it will help. But uh, any parting thoughts, whether it may be a physician out there in the community that's listening or perhaps a patient, how they can advocate on behalf of themselves or their loved ones so that you know, we can keep this uh, important modality in place for the people that we know it will help. Well, 
there are obviously the uh, patients are actually the taxpayers, and they are the ones who are the um, uh, people that Congress and um, the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services listen to because uh, that is their um, the body that is actually paying them uh, through through taxes. So, uh, as a consumer, I think uh, when necessary. Um, the UHMS web, uh, website puts up um, uh, calls to action. Um, but also from the provider standpoint, I think uh, the one thing that we need to do is to make sure that we uh, document uh, very well and appropriately so that our patients um, are appropriate and that when these patients, if their uh, records are requested, that uh, the documentation is there so that the services will be covered. Yeah, I saw that the, the comment in the article that, that talked about that, that, that a group in one of these areas where the, the reimbursement was changing, they had been requested of information, uh, data on patients, and what, some 30, 35% didn't respond? Yes, one would imagine that if uh, Medicare asked for your medical records, uh, you would probably send them. But uh, over almost 50% of uh, the medical records that were requested in one uh, demonstration project uh, were never sent by the providers, either the hospital or the physician. It was unclear. And so those were thought to be um, fraudulent Oh, that's the uh, obvious assumption, it, even if that's not the case. Right. Well, that's how the, that's how it works, and if you know the rules, that's why you answer the question. When, so, if when requested, <laughs> if our colleagues from our specialty are, are listening, get involved. It's obvious that uh, that our specialty is under assault, if you will, um, in an effort to try to contain healthcare costs. Um, they're looking for anywhere we can trim out uh, reimbursement for this or that. Obviously, at first glance, it seems like our treatment is one that's expensive, though in the end we know that uh, it results in fewer hospitalizations in the, in the back end, um, greater outcomes as it relates to patient quality of life and all of those measures that have been studied and documented. Uh, so you, you've got to take on a measure of activism as it relates to CMS and the third-party payers out there. Um, and share information wherever possible, including with uh, the, uh, the, the resource that you talked about for uh, compiling wound data as it relates to continuing to make this particular treatment modality of hyperbaric medicine viable and available for patients. Um, thank you, Helen, for taking time. I know firsthand that you're a very busy person, so I appreciate you taking time away from the office to come and talk about the article that you all published and share some information here about how uh, providers in the community that uh, also function in our space can help keep uh, our, our specialty thriving and available for the patients who need it. And to Laura and, and John, uh, thank you all for sharing some information about this intriguing uh, disease process. Uh, hopefully, um, somebody out there in the community might be able to get some information as to either how they can maybe get their loved one uh, tested, uh, or perhaps maybe a physician will hear it today and understand that, wow, I've, I've seen some people with some things that uh, seemed hard to identify otherwise, perhaps 
this is something that we haven't thought of. Perhaps we should send them for some genetic testing and they'll be able to interface with you. Um, so if they've done that through the show, I'm more than happy to have been able to have you here and, and help you get the information out about what you do. So yeah. if you haven't done so already, make sure that uh, you link up with the Top Docs radio show on Facebook and Twitter. Both both of those are at Top Docs on BRX. As I mentioned, we link up with all of our guests there so that you can get information from them, tie into their websites, link up with them on social media, get questions answered if you have some that come up after the show. Helen, Laura, and thank John, you. thank you very much. Um, we'll have to have you back sometime. There's probably going to be plenty to talk about. Christopher Rudy, producer extraordinaire. Push your button, CW. As always, it was a pleasure. And uh, make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you Tuesday. Thank you.